edition of Fireside Tech Talks with Blaze. I'm Blaze Stewart, architect at Winelect. And today we're going to be looking at what's new on Azure. And I'm going to do something that I didn't plan on doing, and that is looking at racial bias in technology. I was originally going to do a piece on maybe a tech autopsy on Windows Phone, but the events of this week have prompted me to want to change gears and do something that's more contextual to what's going on in the world right now. So I'm going to be covering this, looking at a couple of things that I think are problems that can be solved. And uh, we will discuss those after we make the announcements about what is new on Azure this week. It's been a pretty quiet week on announcements for Azure, but a few I do want to highlight are the general availability of local SSDs on the D-series and E-series VMs. Now, D-series are general purpose VMs, and E-series are memory-optimized VMs. Having that low-latency drive attached locally means that the time it takes to go get data from the storage and bring it back to the actual CPU and memory is much lower than it was before because when you have a storage device that is located some distance away from the actual compute and memory, the round trip time is significantly higher than if it's located close to that CPU and memory where the main compute of an of a given virtual machine is going on. So this means that you can have a lower latency for a memory intense application. So you get that high throughput and that lower latency that SSDs offer, but now put in a local context, it makes it even faster. So this means that you can put on high performance apps on these uh, series of VMs and then get that low latency to the disk. And this would be good for things like databases and uh, purposes that require a lot of disk IO for a lot of small reason writes and those kinds of workloads. Another VM-related announcement on Azure was the inclusion of Azure Virtual Machines on dedicated hosts. Dedicated hosts were designed to give dedicated hardware to customers for specific workloads that they might want to use. But now you can have uh, more virtual machines on those dedicated hosts and these include M-series VMs and NV-series uh, VMs. The NV-series VMs are the virtual machines that have GPUs attached to them so that you can do graphics-intense workloads. Dedicated hosts means that you can have the memory-intense with the M-series and the graphics-intense workloads with the NV-series, and all of these combined make a option that is available for those that need that more dedicated compute resource for very intense compute applications such as video rendering or 3D rendering or something along those lines. A general availability announcement was made for bring your own key to uh, Azure Key Vault. And Azure Key Vault is a cloud-based hardware security module. And what this allows you to do now is bring keys from on-premise hardware security modules into Azure Key Vault. So this is now generally available and these keys can be used for uh, on-premise purposes as well as in the cloud now on Key Vault. Now with announcements out of the way, I wanted to shift gears and talk about racial issues in technology. And there's two primary areas that I wanted to look at today, and that is the racial disparity in employees at technology companies, and also look at how that translates into some of the products that technology companies produced. Now, this week, of course, there's been a lot of racial tension, not only in the United States, but globally, but it's been magnified in the United States with rampant protests going on across the nation or in response to the killing of Gregory Floyd and how that played out. And the ongoing tensions have re resulted in, of course, lots of vandalism, looting, and uh, violence has been a lot of media coverage of this and a lot of just 
really, really gut-wrenching kinds of things that are coming out as a result of these kinds of protests that are going on. It makes uh, one really step back and want to look at really the the grand picture of what this is getting at. And there is a lot of things that could be said with this. And one of the uh, main reasons people are protesting is the kind of systemic racism that is embedded in much of the culture and embedded in much of the uh, institutions that we uh, almost take for granted, like the police or the school aides or uh, housing, whatever it might be. And the Police are one of the places that is most often seen in the public because of some of the kind of systemic bias that uh, police departments might have towards uh, black people because of the long history that goes back years and years and years and generations and generations that's just been brought forward, brought forward and brought forward. And not much has been really done to address that. But even so, there has been a large outcry in response to a number of killings over the last few years in response to uh, some of these kinds of killings that were unwarranted by police officers uh, killing uh, young black men or, in this case, with Gregory Ford, uh, somebody that wasn't much older than myself. And in that case, it really does make one stop and want to pause and reflect on what what could be done about that. This issue in technology stems from a staffing issue in technology. Technology as an industry is really kind of a new thing, a new phenomenon in terms of the grand scheme of industry in general, like tech companies. We think about you know, big tech companies like Amazon and Microsoft, Google, Facebook, whatever they might be. None of these companies are what we might call legacy companies like Ford or GE or companies that have been around for 100, 120 years now. Um, some companies even older than that. These are relatively new companies that were birthed even in my lifetime, uh, even since I've been an adult like Facebook, it's a rather new company yet is it's huge. And a company like Google, you know, from the world's largest search engine, you know, started in the last 20 years and has become a tech giant. And Microsoft even was was crafted before I was born, but even so, it's not so old that it's really kind of a legacy company, even at that age. And uh, in the early 80s and, and late 70s, the, the disparity between genders wasn't as magnified inside of technology. In fact, most computer science departments had a fairly even split between women and, and men uh, enrolling in those departments. But uh, post-1980, the number of people going into the computer science field uh, has largely favored men and the number of women as a total percentage of that has continually diminished over the years uh, and it's largely dominated by men at this point and that has kind of had a trickle effect into technology companies as they hire new employees most of the available employees in technology companies are uh, coming from these schools that raise up mostly men in computer science and women are largely underrepresented in these um, companies as a result of that. It's not just women and women though, it's also minorities uh, as well. Um, technology companies tend to be dominated by 
people like me, I'm a white male, and these uh, companies tend to have a larger percentage of white males in leadership as well. And we see the particularly women and minority women are hugely underrepresented in technology companies. I could cite study upon study and many companies uh, that have done analysis of this and, and, and third parties. And I have looked at a lot of the statistics and it's not any one company that's doing it. It's, it's it's, it's pretty much an industry-wide trend, and there's been a lot of efforts to try to figure out how to change that trend, to figure out how to mitigate this problem. And there have been some campaigns and a lot of things to try to understand the dynamics of why women in particular don't go into technology and why minorities don't go into technology. But even so, it doesn't really done much to encourage uh, women and minorities to want to work in the industry. So it continues to be dominated by white males. At, even at this point, uh, I hope that that changes. And I think that what I have been seeing in some of the latest data in the last four or five years is that there is some trend that is kind Kind of going uh, in the right direction, but it's not significant enough to really uh, say that problem solved. So there's still a lot of work to be done there to get back to what it might have been at the beginning whenever women and uh, minorities were more represented in the general population that is in the United States would be reflected in some of these technology companies. And coming on the heels of this staffing issue that exists in technology companies is a lot to do with the kind of technology that they produced. And when you have a person programming a, an application, the programmer whether they do it intentionally or not, has a, an intrinsic bias about how they develop that software. Uh, and you might think, how does bias translate into technology? Well, there are ways that that happens whenever you make assumptions about the technology and how that technology ends up playing out whenever you develop it. And two technologies that stand out that have been studied heavily are both facial recognition technology and sentiment analysis technology against speech. Facial recognition technology is, is not a new tech. It's been around for the better part of 20 years now, and it's been employed in, in various avenues uh, that was first used at the Super Bowl in 2001 as facial recognition for people coming in to the Super Bowl and law enforcement were using it to attempt to identify people that might have warrants against them. And over the last 20 or so years, it's been widely used in law enforcement uh, by different agencies, not just police, but uh, globally, it's been used, uh, such as the Chinese to identify Uyghurs, uh, which is a minority in uh, Western China that is certainly not more Central Asian than they are um, associated with the uh, predominant ethnic group of China, which would be the, the Han Chinese. And uh, they have used it to identify Uyghur individuals. An expert in this field who has done research at MIT is Joy Balamwini. And Joy had a tech talk where she did talk about facial recognition and she illustrated this very thing that I'm talking about here where she talked about how the disparity in technology between minorities and between uh, genders has resulted in a predominantly male dominated technology space and how that has translated into some of the original software that has been written uh, going on to do facial recognition and then how that technology was then 
uh, extended to build better technology, but it was predominantly uh, designed to recognize faces that were white. And uh, whenever she tested herself against that technology, it failed to recognize her face because she is a black woman and the facial recognition technology was not designed to take into consideration something that was other than the designers of the original technology, which were predominantly white men. In that same TED Talk, she goes on to talk about how this technology is being used by law enforcement and how the implications of this abound, particularly how the technology that has predominantly been developed for a specific gender and a specific race has implications on those who are not of that specific gender and that specific race. And there's no checks and balances or there's being nothing to do, nothing being done to really adjust the technology in order to make it less biased towards particular individuals because of its origination. Joy goes on to make a call for better regulation concerning this kind of technology because the technology, while it's not explicitly biased, it probably was not intended to be biased towards particular individuals. The results of the technology can result in a systemic bias against a particular demographic of individuals who don't match the parameters that were baked into the software from its inception. A similar phenomenon exists with the kind of technology that's used for sentiment analysis that is used to detect hate speech. What sentiment analysis is attempting to do is look at speech that is being posted as text and determine what the attitude or the mood of the individual posting that text is based on data that is already pre-coded with specific phrases and words that are used to communicate specific moods and specific sentiments. These databases are then put into an AI model that is used to produce a AI model that can then be applied more generally to most text that is coming in that's not a part of the original data set in order to give a score against that particular text according to the model. And when that score falls within a particular range, it's used as a determinant for whatever the sentiment of that particular text is. That person's happy, that person's sad, they're depressed, they're neutral, whatever it might be. While sentiment analysis has come a long way, detecting hate speech can be hard because it removes the person saying it from the context of what is being said. The speech itself or the text doesn't really tell you anything about the culture or the dialect that is being used in a particular speech. And a particular utterance or sentence, whatever it might be, might use the same words as another dialect. And in a given guy, in one given dialect, those words may not be offensive or the phrase might not be offensive, but in a completely different dialect, the words or phrases might be horribly offensive. Martin Sapp and his team did some analysis of utterances and phrases that would typically be okay in certain African-American communities against these APIs. And the APIs identified these generally acceptable phrases as hate speech because it didn't take into account the context in which something was being said. Now, SAP and his team weren't trying to call out specific APIs for any particular reason, but instead they were really looking at the actual data sets that were used to produce the models that drive those APIs. And by doing the experiments that they did, they did come to the conclusion that there was systemic bias against black people because of that. 
in an interview that Sap did with TechNet, he illustrates this when he says this. He says, as we can see in our controlled experiments, it is likely that there's something about missing context in which tweets occurred that causes annotators to assume the worst. Because this is an annotation and a human bias issue, it is likely that our findings hold for the perspective API. That's the API they're now analyzing as well. But since we don't have exactly what they're doing to train the data or their model, we can only observe the API's behavior. The systemic problems that exist in tech are certainly not unique to technology. Of course, there's systemic issues throughout most industries, and it's easy to highlight the ones that I'm familiar with because I'm familiar with the uh, tech industry and that's what I primarily deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. But I think the takeaways that we can have from tech apply universally regardless of the context of which one lives and works in. The first takeaway I think that we can have is to acknowledge that problems still exist in the present because of the past. The, the past has been riddled with generation upon generation having racial biases towards one from one race to another that has produced a system of racism that many people don't even see because it is just so baked into the fabric of what is considered normal that sometimes it's hard to get out of that context and really see it objectively as one might be able to do as if we were to travel to a foreign country and see issues there that the locals might not see. But even so, trying to do that in one's own context can be very helpful. And even if it's not seen, listening to those who do see it can be a way of of coming to grips with it and just acknowledging that it does exist is one huge step in trying to figure out how to solve and mitigate those kinds of issues. And then the same principle applies on a personal level. The, the second takeaway would be that accept the possibility that even though one might not be consciously racist, that is, you're not consciously biased towards another person but another race, things that you inherited from your culture or your parents or habits that you might have might be. And being open to the possibility that these habits and practices that you take as normal, just everyday practices might have racial implications is hard for some people to acknowledge. But if you can be open to the possibility that you might have those, it means that you can figure out ways to deal with those. And the best thing to do here is not to get defensive about it because nobody's going to consider you a racist until you really give them a reason to do so. That is, you know, calling somebody an inappropriate word or taking action uh, against a person based on race. But, you know, some things that you might do just as habits might not be considered racist in your mind and they might be completely benign to you. But if a person were to come up to you and say, eh, you might want to think about that, it being open to that possibility at least allows you to correct those behaviors. And being able to do that is a growth that I think anybody that is in the particular de demographic that I'm in yeah, can be open to because I'm certainly not free from biases. And I want to be open to correction from individuals that can have a, that objective view of me and that that can look at me and say that practice or that thing you're doing uh, isn't exactly appropriate in this context, maybe something you might want to change. I'll be like, oh, I didn't even realize that. Thanks for letting me know that I will do something to mitigate that action. The last thing I would add to my list is 
pretty simple, and that's to try and be understanding to where others are coming from. Take a moment to listen to what others are saying before speaking about racism. This subject is not something that can easily be broken down into sound bites or pithy slogans or folksy sayings. And these kinds of things usually aren't very helpful anyway. Uh, these are very complex issues and they're very nuanced. We've looked at some systemic issues already, but these are, go to the personal level and they also go up to the stru structural level where we talk about cultural issues and we talk about a culture of racism, not just a system of racism or a personal issue. It's very nuanced and very complex issues that have to be addressed uh, at every level. And it starts with coming together with another person who is of the oppressed group and listening to them. And just because you're from the majority group or you're from the group that has traditionally been the oppressor doesn't mean that you are. And so you can be a part of the solution by simply just listening to people and having that new understanding will have profound implications on how you understand the issues and how you can be a part of the solution to solving those issues on the backside of that. Well, thanks for tuning into this episode of Fireside Tech Talks with Blaze. Hopefully next week we'll get back on to something that might be a normal episode where we look at something in tech, maybe do a tech autopsy on Windows Phone like I was originally planning on doing this week, pending that something crazy in our world doesn't happen, which seems to be more more happening more often these days than not. But in any case, I hope to see you on a future episode of Fireside Tech Talks with Blaze. Bye.